From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is Are We There Yet? The podcast exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Hardware for SpaceX's commercial crew program and NASA's SLS rocket have arrived at the Kennedy Space Center, and Elon Musk continues work on his Starship rockets. It's been a busy few weeks in space news. We'll talk with space reporters Emery Kelly and Emily Speck about the latest in getting astronauts to the International Space Station, the Moon, and beyond. And later, a recent discovery by exoplanet hunters claims that a distant planet has an atmosphere filled with water vapor. Why is water so important in the search for life in the universe? We'll talk to our panel of experts on our weekly segment, I'd Like to Know. But first, SpaceX's commercial crew hardware arrives at Kennedy Space Center, along with a delivery of an SLS test piece. And Elon Musk gives an update on his stainless steel Starhopper. That's a lot to say. It's time this month to speak with space journalists Emily Speck and Emery Kelly about the latest in space news. Emily is a reporter covering space at WKMG, Central Florida's CBS affiliate. Emily, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here again. And we're also speaking with Emery Kelly. He's the space reporter at Florida Today. Emery, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Well, SpaceX says that the Falcon 9 booster and the capsule for SpaceX's in-flight abort test is here at the Kennedy Space Center, another critical milestone in the commercial crew program. Um, Emery Kelly, this is a pretty big deal for SpaceX and commercial crew. Bring us up to speed. This is continuing to, to pave the way, really, to, to get astronauts back to the International Space Station from, from U.S. soil. Um, as, you, as you know, in April, Crew Dragon suffered uh, an anomaly, which really was uh, an explosion, and uh, it, was, it was lost. So since then, they've been pretty busy trying to figure out what went wrong and, and remedy those issues. Luckily, uh, there were a few Crew Dragons uh, already being built. So the changes could be integrated, uh, if you will, into the process of you know building building those new ones. So, uh, as you said, they're they're you know building it or bringing in test articles in advance of most likely launching humans again uh, by early next year is now what it what it looks like for SpaceX. So a bit of a delay uh, sliding to the right there. Um, Emily Speck, this is the in-flight abort test. This is a, a critical test for SpaceX. Um, mm-hmm. What is it? Well, essentially, um, they're going to conduct what would happen if, say, the Falcon 9 launched with the Crew Dragon on top of the rocket and something something went wrong and they needed to get the astronauts in the capsule away from the rocket that could possibly explode. So essentially it kind of uh, shuttles them away from any anomaly or uh, explosion and, and to safety where they would then land and they would need this uh, parachute system to kind of come down, splash down, and they would be safe. So it's it's very important because mm-hmm. uh, as we've seen, I mean, one example, it's a different space ship and uh, rocket was in Russia, mm-hmm. where they did have to abort the astronauts. We've seen that these systems work and that they're important and that they save lives. So uh, it's it's very critical. Emery Kelly, uh, Boeing has a similar cadence of test flights as well. Can you kind of line those up for us? Uh, what's ahead for Boeing, which is the other partner in uh, NASA's commercial crew program? Yeah, so Boeing needs to first conduct its uncrewed test flight to the International Space Station, and that'll launch on a United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket. So they need to launch a test flight with no astronauts, hang out at the ISS for a while, 
come back and uh, safely return that capsule to land uh, to pave the way for then their crewed version of flight. SpaceX already conducted the equivalent of that uh, in March. So they need, to, they need to get that off the ground and going. Um, that now, I believe, is targeted for, uh, now they're just kind of saying later this year, so probably November, December. Um, but that, that does kind of keep sliding. So mm-hmm. I, I guess we'll, we'll kind of find out. It's, it's hard to nail down a date because they, are, they also need to confl- conduct an abort test. Mm-hmm. And uh, some days the abort test appears to be ahead of the uncrewed test flight. So um, it kind of just depends on which team is ready first, and then they'll conduct that test first. Now, the whole point of NASA's commercial crew program was to end the reliance on rides to the International Space Station from the Russian Space Agency. With these dates moving farther to the right and being delayed even farther, um, Emily Speck, does that run the risk that NASA is going to have to go back and buy more seats from from Russia? I think there's only what one or two more rides left. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're running out of rides. So um, not only that, but um, Russia is coming. They have their new uh, spacecraft that they're coming up with. So that there is still in development. So, um, yeah, NASA is at risk or not at risk, but um, they need to make the decision probably already in the works right now that they need to go back and see if they can negotiate for more seats, um, which means millions of dollars. It's, I think, $84 million every time they launch an astronaut for us. So it's a lot of money. That's taxpayer money that's, you know, going towards another country. Um, So, but I think that they've probably been realizing that this would need to happen Mm -hmm. for a while now. Otherwise, you know, we will not have a ride to the space station for American astronauts. Mm -hmm. Emery, what's your sense of that? Uh, Do you think that there's going to be the risk that that this does slip to next year and NASA is going to need to find another ride to the station for uh, for later crew exchanges? I think it kind of already is at that point a little bit. So that the next version of of Soyuz slated to launch is April. So even if commercial crew were a little more ahead of schedule, it would not be developed enough to just consistently be taking American astronauts to the ISS right now. Right. It would, there, there would still be, it would still be in uh, mostly a testing phase or perhaps they would have just completed the, the crew test flights and they'd be moving on to the operational flights. And even that would have been a tight fit if they were ready now for those operational flights. But they're not. So they still need to do the, uh, these, these upcoming tests to be ready. Meanwhile, the old version of Soyuz was, was kind of handling it. it it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting predicament mm-hmm. because there is no scheduled, quote-unquote, old Soyuz ready to go on the mm-hmm. pad right now. They can't just buy seats without procuring or, or producing another vehicle. So um, obviously the thinking a year, five, eight years ago, was that by now commercial crew would be up and running and taking people up and down to the ISS. So mm-hmm. it looks like we, we have an interesting six to 12 months yeah. ahead of us to see, you know, if we bind more seats on the on the Soyuz or if commercial crew can speed things up a little bit. I think it's interesting. I just wanted to jump in here and say that, 
you know, this is also going to play into the fact that NASA is trying to get more business on the space station. So, yeah, they can continue to launch, you know, uh, the uncrewed Dragon to the space station and send supplies. And, and they have multiple ways to do that. But if we don't have astronauts on the space station, those marketing missions and, mm-hmm. those, you know, like Doubletree isn't going to have their baked cookies on the oven, you know, or in the space station. Um, so I think for a, a business perspective, it's mm-hmm. there are some risks there. You know, if we don't have enough at a crew on the space station to, to continue the science and the important experiments that are happening, um, you know, on this only orbiting laboratory um, mm-hmm. that we have. That's that's going to be pretty critical. So. They have that AI robot up there, though, right? right. That can do all yeah. of that, right? Well, definitely going to be something interesting to keep our eyes on in the next 6 to 12 months when it comes to commercial crew. Um, something else to keep our eyes on in the next 6 to 12 months, um, according to Elon Musk, is his Starship. He gave a presentation recently about the developments in that. Um, Emery, what have we learned about Elon Musk's uh, stainless steel Starship out in the desert of Texas? Yeah, so he, he provided an update a couple weekends ago at this point and uh, said, well, mostly talked about hardware and changes being made to the spacecraft. A lot of it was, was pretty technical, um, I think, for, for, for most folks. But basically spent a lot of time talking about why is this spacecraft uh, going to be made of stainless steel, how its reentry process is going to work and, and land vertically, be it on Earth or Mars. Um, and really, you know, SpaceX is hoping continues, you know, to, to, to say what it said before, that this will be the deep space vehicle for for the company and for perhaps dozens of people to ride on. Not only is Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX developing star, a Starship prototype in West Texas, uh, there's another team here on the Space Coast working on Starship, and, and you've had the opportunity to drive by and stick your neck out and take a look at uh, what's happening there. Uh, tell us about the East Coast Starship. What, what's happening there? So they're building two versions of, uh, of this shiny stainless steel prototype. Uh, they're, they're both – well, the, the one in Boca Chica, Texas, is, is far more along. Than the, than the Coco version. Coco got a much later start, but they're both built by, by SpaceX teams. Uh, they're kind of in friendly competition with each other to uh, see who can, you know, build the, I, I, don't, I don't know if better is the right word, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Coco version is out in, a, in an industrial area, kind of actually right off the highway. You can actually see it if you're driving to or, or from the beach. And um, it looks like at this point all they need to do is put the nose cone on there and they'll be pretty much ready to go. Mm-hmm. And because it's being built at what was once a uh, an old manufacturing area, they need to transport it out to the Cape, out to Kennedy Space Center or, or the Air Force Station. And to do that, they'll actually need to get it out on the road and then get it uh, onto a barge and, and get it over there. So it's going to be interesting to see, just stand on the side of the road here in, in the coming months and watch them move this giant shell, if mm-hmm. you will, in advance of a suborbital flight. It's not, you know, it's not going to launch with satellites or anything like that. It's, it's purely going to be a prototype mm-hmm. test launch to see if the structure is good and if the engines perform well. Uh, well, another critical uh, piece of hardware arrived at the Kennedy Space Center recently. The SLS Core Stage Pathfinder arrived uh, via Pegasus Barge, which was a sight to see. I had a chance to uh, watch it 
pull in, and that thing is massive. Emily Spec, um, this is a critical piece of hardware they're going to use to fit test uh, the SLS rocket. Are we getting closer to SLS? Um, well, this is going to get them to, like you said, a, it's a critical step. You know, this is not a, the real core booster. It's kind of like a practice booster. It's the, the same size and weight. Um, so yes and no. Um, you know, there are a couple uh, very big steps that still need to happen before we see SLS on the Space Coast. Um, but before you work with a rocket of this size, which will be the largest rocket mm-hmm we've ever seen uh you need to know how to assemble it and and what what it's like working with something so large so that's kind of what pathfinder is for uh but but yeah i'm i'm interested to see within the next couple months i know there's a couple tests i believe the actual core booster is going to get um set up on the test stand at stennis for um some static fires tests what else is coming up there's there have been a lot of a lot of moving pieces to this so Mm -hmm. emery kelly what what's ahead for sls what critical milestones are are you keeping your eye on and uh do you think that NASA will be able to meet that kind of rough deadline they've said of launching SLS and the Orion uncrewed capsule by the end of next year? Uh, probably not. <laughs> that's that, that's probably not happening by the end of next year. And NASA's administrator Jim Bridenstine says says as much. Uh, a more firm target date will will <clears throat> will come once the hardware. I, I would imagine once the hardware arrives at Kennedy Space Center. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're obviously doing more testing with the core stage, which is uh, being built by Boeing. That core stage of the SLS obviously is called the core stage because it's huge. I mean, it's 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 the main part of the rocket, mm-hmm. and that needs to be tested uh, out at NASA's Stennis Center, and then eventually needs to be transported to Kennedy Space Center on a barge, the same barge, actually, that brought that test article in. And, um, you know, from there they need to... I mean, th- this is also the first time the VAB has been used in quite some time. So mm-hmm. it's going to take some time to get this thing in there and, and get it, get teams, you know, up to speed on, on putting it together and getting used to it again and then um, launching the, the uncrewed Orion. So at this point, according to the latest uh, GAO report, it could be that mid-2021 is a more realistic time frame for the first SLS launch. And finally, um, before I let you two go, um, the first of 10 spacewalks happened on Sunday. Um, This is going to be at a pace not seen before since the final assembly of the International Space Station back in 2011. Um, Emily Speck, what are you looking forward to during these space launches? I'm sorry, what are you (laughs) looking forward to during these uh, spacewalks? yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to see them pulling off this uh, rapid pace of spacewalks. Uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, and then I'm also looking forward to a do over of sorts uh, for NASA when um, <clears throat> excuse me when two female astronauts uh, actually have the first all female spacewalk. This was supposed to happen a couple months back. It didn't happen because uh, they didn't have the right. Uh, Upper hard upper torsos for for two women that required the same size. Now they have they say they have all the right suit parts, so it should happen. And this is going to be really cool because it's going to be with Christina and Jessica, who are best friends. Mm-hmm. So not only are they in space together, but they're going to space walk together. So that's exciting. I think it's going to be a bit of a, a redemption, and and it all seems like it's gonna it's gonna work out. <laughs> mm-hmm. October twenty first is the yes. scheduled for that, but obviously that can slip. 
Um, Emery Kelly, before I let you go, um, what's on your calendar? What are you keeping your eye on in, uh, in the space news realm uh, this month? We have the launch of uh, NASA's ICOM spacecraft, but that's not on a, on a traditional rocket that will be mm-hmm. dropped from an aircraft, a smaller rocket dropped from an aircraft, and it'll, it'll take off at, uh, I want to say, about 40,000 feet uh, off the coast of Daytona-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, on the more traditional rocket front, SpaceX is supposed to launch uh, the next batch of its Starlink communication satellites sometime at this point, I would, I would guess probably in the second half of the, of the month, probably closer to Halloween. And then um, for the rest of the year, we're maybe looking at a, a couple more launches, but it's, uh, it's going to slow down a bit. Well, we've been speaking with Emery Kelly. He's the space reporter at Florida Today. Emery, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. And Emily Speck, she covers space for WKMG. That is Central Florida's CBS affiliate. Emily, thanks for speaking with us. Always happy to be here. Be sure to give them both a follow on Twitter to stay in the know. They're at Emery Kelly and at EM Spec. It's now time for a segment called I'd Like to Know, where we take your questions and pose them to a panel of expert scientists. We're joined today by University of Central Florida planetary scientist and host of the podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. Scientists have discovered a planet outside of our solar system that contains signs of water, a key resource needed to support life. The planet, named K218b, is about 110 light years away and was discovered using NASA's Kepler Space Telescope. Astronomers at the University College London made follow-up observations of the planet with the Hubble Space Telescope and uncovered signs of water vapor in the distant planet's atmosphere, similar to clouds here on Earth. So why is water a key piece of evidence in the search for life? Why put that question to the panel and Josh kicked off the conversation? Well, water enables chemical reactions. So one of its important aspects is just it's a liquid and you can put the ingredients for life, the building blocks, the famous building blocks of life, you know, like your Lego bricks. Lego bricks are the building blocks of life? (laughs) They're the building blocks of my life. Yeah, of of our childhoods. Yeah. They, uh, if they're just sitting around in a a non-liquid environment, it's difficult for them to react. Uh, So reactions are greatly enabled just by being in a liquid, and water is a very abundant liquid. It's made of hydrogen and oxygen, the first and third most abundant elements in the universe. Could there be other building blocks of life other than water? Or for it to swim around in? <laughs> well, water itself isn't a building block, right, really, right. of life. Sh- it's the Legos a, are it's, swimming in it. It's yeah. enabling uh, those reactions to take place. Um, so, a- so, yeah, you can have other things. It's, you know, and the, the key here is that the water needs to be liquid, right? So it's, it's only liquid in a narrow range of temperatures. Uh, when we talk about water in astronomy, sometimes we're talking about water vapor, and that's not going to help you too much with life. Or solid water, that's not going to help you too much. But liquid water is what you need. And yeah, there are other liquids. Uh, another nice thing about water is not only is it a liquid, but it also dissolves all those uh, building blocks very, very well so that they can wander into each other. Whereas other things that are liquid don't do such a good job of dissolving the, the building blocks. Yeah, it has a very specific chemical structure right. uh, that allows it to interact with different molecules better. And, and also things like, I don't know, methane and ethane that might be liquid on Titan, for instance. Those aren't, it's not going to things aren't going to be soluble in that the same way that they are in water. So you're not going to be able to have them react the same way. It seems like we're discovering planets that might have these conditions, you know, quite rapidly, you know, with with all these different exoplanet hunting telescopes. You know, is this an outlier? Or do we think that there's going to be more planets that might have 
water vapor on. Water, I mean, as Josh mentioned, water is a pretty common, uh, it's made up of some of the most common elements in the universe, and it's a it's a pretty common uh, mix-up of those elements to be able to see. Um, there's a lot of sort of excitement when we talk about water, so I think that it gets highlighted a lot in, in when we're discovering these things and when we're looking for planets. Um, but just because you have O and H, which is often what we see, doesn't actually necessarily mean there's water. So a lot of times we talk about water on the moon, but it's actually OH, hydroxyl, not H2O. Um, so there's a lot of like water-like products also that we see in these planets that we expect to see pretty much everywhere in the universe. The uh, astrobiologists actually use the potential existence of water in that liquid state that Jim was referring to as the definition of the habitable zone in a solar system. So from our uh, Earth-centric perspective in our solar system. The Earth is a water planet, uh, and it's teeming with life. And so it's a natural signature to look for is like, oh, there may be life on that other world. And as you mentioned, it's the golden age of discovery of exoplanets. So uh, it's uh, a really exciting time, and I'm sure we will be seeing more planets. We've already seen a lot of planets in the so-called habitable zone where we know that's at the right distance from a star so that in principle, water could exist on its surface. It's worth pointing out that Mars and Venus are also technically in the habitable zone of this solar system, and they don't have liquid water on the surface because the atmospheres of the planets play a big role in determining whether or not liquid water can exist there. So just because it's in the habitable zone doesn't automatically mean that there could be life on it, right? right. Correct. And in this particular planet that, that uh, this news story was about, probably there isn't liquid water because uh, it's probably not quite the kind of planet that maybe some of the news stories purported it to be. It's probably more like a Uranus or a Neptune mm -hmm. uh, and probably doesn't really have a solid surface uh, and so probably doesn't have liquid water, even though there's water in the atmosphere. If it had been a kind of a world where there is a solid surface, then it was probably at the right place where there might be liquid water. But this particular planet is probably not teeming with life. Yeah, but you never know. It's four times more massive than the Earth or something like that. So it's a, a significantly larger planet than the Earth. Um, and so uh, it's in a kind of an interesting realm, not the size of planet that we see in our own solar system. And it's also probably getting bombarded by radiation from its star, right? All planets are getting bombarded by radiation from the star. In this particular one, I don't know its distance from the star or the spectral type of that star. Uh, in general, the exoplanets that we see, for the most part, have been close to relatively dim, cool stars. That's because those are easier planets to see because they're not outshone by mm -hmm. their parent stars as much. Because, so you might say, oh, it's a cooler star, great. Uh, that's calmer and uh, more conducive to life. But the problem is that for you to be in the habitable zone around a cool star, you've got to be very close to it. And those cooler stars also tend to be a little bit more temperamental than a star like the sun. And so they're, you're very close to them, and they occasionally have temper tantrums, which sends out big flares of <laughs> uh, dangerous particles. So that is an issue. Uh, another important factor with planets and life is the presence of a magnetic field that helps protect you from uh, mm -hmm. those charged particles from the star. Yeah, this planet is actually orbiting a red dwarf star. Uh, so it's... it's it's one of these it's dim, one of cool these stars. dim, cool stars that probably has a lot of radiation at different wavelengths than what we see here, um, like peaks at different wavelengths and also more temperamental uh, outbursts. And that means this planet is much closer to it than we are to the sun and even probably than Mercury is to the sun. Uh, so that habitable zone then becomes a really, really narrow range. It's kind of like if you're if you have a giant fire, there's a nice range of 
distances where you're going to be comfortably hot, warm yeah. from that fire. You're going to be very far away, but you know you can move around and you'll still be fine. But if you're trying to warm yourself up from a tiny, brilliant little light source, you've got to be just at the right distance from it for it to work out. Mm-hmm. Works the same way with stars. Mm-hmm. And how do we? How do scientists make this measurement? How do you observe liquid water? on an exoplanet when we're not actually making direct observations of these planets, right? so hard, right? Because seeing the atmosphere of... Because we're not seeing the planets at all, right? What we're seeing is the light from the star plus the light from the planet all together, and we're trying to tease out what elements are in that light using spectroscopy. Uh, and you have to you have to make these measurements at really particular times when this planet is, like, partly in front of the star so that some of the starlight is passing through the atmosphere of the planet, and it's uh, you know, a little bit of that light is being absorbed by the atmosphere of the planet and taken out of this signal from... It's, it's a really, really complicated, difficult job, but props to those who do it. Yeah, and this is much harder for something like a, a smaller terrestrial planet like the Earth. You're not going to be able to see what's on the surface right now, right? We're looking at what's in the atmosphere. Right. So you can infer what might be on the surface based on the size of the planet and what we see in the atmosphere, but we can't actually see right now what... Anything on the yeah, you're not you're like. not going to see a headline anytime soon that's like liquid water found on the surface of an exoplanet because we just can't <laughs> yes. do that. You but, might see it, but it won't be real. <laughs> right. but, but, but what you might see using the same technique that was used to see the water vapor is signs of oxygen. Right. Mm-hmm. So you might and see if, free oxygen, which might be and and life. a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere. <laughs> that would be a very very compelling indicator that there's life down there because oxygen likes to react with stuff. Mm-hmm. So something needs to be producing it, and life is the best bet. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, we're in the golden age of exoplanet discovery, so a lot more great things to come. We've been speaking with Josh Caldwell, Jim Cooney, and Addie Dove. They're the hosts of the Walk About the Galaxy podcast. Thank you all for being here. Our pleasure. Thanks for having yep. us. That was Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida. They also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Check it out wherever you download your podcasts or on their website, walkaboutthegalaxy.com. And if you have a question for I'd Like to Know, send it in. Shoot me an email, yet at wmfe.org. You can also send me a tweet at awtymars, or find us on Facebook and leave us a post there. Just search for Are We There Yet podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Be sure to follow us on social media for the latest space news. And stay listening. Next week, we'll take a trip to Kennedy Space Center and visit the team at Swamp Works. They're working with companies like SpaceX to better understand moon dust and how we can land rocket ships on the lunar surface. This podcast is a production of WMFE, and support for it comes from listeners just like you. Show your support with a donation. You can visit WMFE.org slash support, and thank you. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. For more space news, visit us online at WMFE.org slash space. Until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.